Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber dot com. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Okay, hello again, and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Pre-Hospital Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dawn Kerslake, Consultant Midwife at South East Coast Ambulance Service, about the normal birth and some of the possible complications of birth and how to deal with them. As always, I'm just going to elbow in a quick plug about pre-med first. So now that we're out of lockdown and in phase three of the COVID roadmap, I'm pleased to say we're planning some face-to-face teaching again. For those in the southeast, we currently have an ECG day scheduled in July and an airway day in August. We also have a pre-hospital respiratory emergencies workshop in the pipeline, uh, so keep an eye out for that as well. For those not so close, don't despair. We're continuing with our pre-med online webinars, and in addition to our currently advertised ECG sessions, we have a number of guest speakers delivering webinars on a variety of sessions, which will be advertised shortly. All details are on www.prem-ed.com, uh, and that's it for the plug. So let's get on with the episode. Okay. Um, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. We're on uh, season two and episode three of the Pre-Hospital podcast. And today I'm speaking again to Dawn Kerslake. Hi, Dawn. Hi, Silas. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks. How are you? All good, thanks. All good. Thanks for joining us. I think most people probably would have heard our first discussion, um, what was that, about eight or nine months ago now in, in series one. Um, but for those that haven't, would you mind just giving us a bit of an introduction about yourself, um, your role and um, what you do kind of day to day, please? Of course I can. Yes. So I am a Southeast Coast Ambulance Service Consultant Midwife. 
And I've been with Southeast Coast now for, gosh, it's coming up for two and a half years. That's gone very, very quickly. Um, prior to that, um, well, I don't want to say how long I've been qualified, but it's nearly 30 years. We'll leave it there. <laughs> started, started my life as a nurse, um, did ED nursing for a while and then uh, flipped over to midwifery. And I think I've done most things within midwifery. I won't bore all of our listeners to my my CV, but uh, my previous job before I came to CCAM was labour ward matron in a really busy acute trust. Nice, nice. So um, we won't say long CV, a broad CV. Um, with a lot of experience and culminating in this kind of consultant post. So what, as, as a consultant midwife, what is your kind of day-to-day work? Do you um, do much clinical work or is it all um, kind of management guideline stuff? Complete mixture. Um, and it's quite difficult because normally when you're in a hospital, you've got a team of people. So you've got a risk team. So if something comes up that's a near miss or you've got some concerns, you can pass that on to your risk team and just have oversight. As the only one in the service, you kind of need to... Be, a, be all things to all men, I guess. So training is a massive part. And certainly in the first well, year to 18 months, um, training has been the biggest focus because quite a lot of our colleagues hadn't had a lot of maternity training for quite some time, actually. And some, I think some even alluded to the fact they hadn't had any for 30 years. So uh, very quickly, I sort of realised that needed to be my focus initially. Uh, And we're just coming out the other side of key skills, which thankfully for the last year, I've been very fortunate to have half a day key skills. So um, we obviously then went into the pandemic and lockdown. So I had to make videos, but it's still so far Touchwood. I've managed to attend every single one since March last year and give an hour of FAQs at the end of the videos that I've that I've made. So I'm hoping staff have found it useful. The feedback's been positive. Um, and now we need to look at how we can develop the service further. Um, so Datex liaising with the um, LMSs locally and the individual acute trusts, acting as a conduit between CCAM and the acute trusts for all things. Um, and 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 a lot of training and a lot of uh, development of guidelines and um, currently reviewing all of the maternity JR cal collectively as a maternity group uh, and that's a nationwide maternity group so hopefully we'll be able to make some really good changes um, and some inroads in the JR cal guidance. So busy role day today then and on top of that you have people like myself calling up with our individual maternity emergencies. Yeah, but that's my own fault, isn't it? Because when I started, I got the CCPs to train up first as a cohort of champions, as you've now all become. <laughs> and so I was uh, I was very generous with giving out my phone number. But that's fine, actually, because you are the go to for the rest of the clinicians in the organisation. So it's only right, isn't it, that you have somebody that you can call if you don't know the answer, albeit most of you do know the answers now because you've had it drummed into you. But yeah, it's only it's- right have somebody to, to call. Yeah, it's, it's a really useful thing. And we've obviously spoken before, um, which may come up in our discussion. Um, but yeah, so thanks for the introduction. I think, as we've discussed today, we're going to talk through a couple of different subjects um, broadly around the kind of standard maternity emergencies or, you know, not standard because they're fairly rare, but the the kind of standard package that people um, should be expected to understand from JRCALC is probably fair to say. Yep, that's fine. I mean, standard would be the normal birth and we will look, we will talk about that perhaps a little bit longer. Yeah, so that's a good place to start, isn't it? Should we have a bit of discussion about what is a normal delivery? Because we discussed it before, um, but again, it was a few months ago. And it's like you say, it's statistically the most likely thing to happen by far. And it's useful, I think, to understand what's normal, to recognise what is abnormal. 
Um, so are you happy to just go over the normal delivery and we'll have a, a bit of a discussion around there and then see how we go from there? Yeah, absolutely. So the normal birth is, as you say, the thing that we go to most. And I think it's still the thing that everybody fears the most. When I ask, well, when I rock up to do any training anywhere, people are always delighted to see me. And I always think that's lovely, but actually it's not me they want, it's my knowledge. Um, because everybody <laughs> seems to be really fearful of maternity. Um, and I do understand why, I completely understand why. And I think we talked in the previous episode as to why that was. Um, and we have to watch things unfold and evolve. And we're not used to that. We're used to getting there after it's all happened. So uh, it makes perfect sense. And I tell you what else I observe quite a lot, which I find really entertaining, is that when somebody goes into a woman who is about to birth her baby, uh, as sometimes happens because women don't quite get to uh, to the hospital in time or they get a quarter bit short because ultimately baby number one takes anything from, you know, 12 to 18 hours classically. And then baby number two is always the quickest shoots out like a rocket so it's not a surprise that we often get called to women that are somewhat unprepared for what's about to to ensue so um so yeah so when we rock up to these women uh i spend my life saying to Cruz, when you get there there's only a couple of things you need to know her name (laughs) and if she's got any complications during the pregnancy and that's kind of it they're the two questions you need to ask when you first arrive because if she's pushing then you're not going anywhere, you're staying. And she's not really in any place to have a good discussion with you right now because she's trying to birth a baby. Yeah. And the thing that we all do, and it is quite hilarious to watch, is we ignore what's now been commonly classed as the pointy end, (laughs) the vagina. (laughs) Um, No one likes to say that word, so I'll say it. Um, So everybody ignores that and everybody just carries on talking to mum almost inanely about stuff that's almost irrelevant. Yeah, just to make themselves feel more comfortable. Exactly. A problem ignored is a problem gone away. And it's like, no, it's not going to go away. It's still going to come out. I'm really sorry, guys. But just put your gloves on, introduce yourself and say, let's find a comfortable position for you because I think the baby's about to come. And then you need to really uh, gently suggest that you should take her clothing off from the waist down. Now, our crews really struggle with that as well. And there have been some hilarious suggestions of what people might say. And it's just so easy. Is it all right if I just slip your trousers down or can we just take your clothes off from the waist down? Something really, really generic is fine. Um, But we all avoid it, don't we? Yeah. I I wonder if the reason for that avoiding it is because in your head, there's some part of you that still thinks you might be able to get to hospital. Whereas I I kind of think, you know, if you commit to a, a pathway of not treatment, it's not treatment, is it? But, you know, you commit to a kind of pathway of care. And once you do that, it's kind of easier to say, right, you need to take your clothes off because we're going to deliver a baby. But I wonder if the hesitancy of some people is to is 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 there because they haven't yet convinced themselves that they're going to deliver the baby in the house. And I certainly find I found, you know, we we, we go to quite a lot of cases where um, they've been categorised as imminent delivery. And then it's it's not quite so clear when you arrive. And so you're often in the situation of making a decision of whether we go into hospital or staying to try and deliver the baby and i think that's that's where the kind of that's where the binary decision needs to be made and i think that's a useful thing to understand so what what are the kind of tips and ways to recognize that this this person's imminently going to deliver or there might be a few more hours and they're they're not that far on in their their first stage of labor so those of our colleagues that have been to my key skills or my or probably actually more likely my face to face training will tell you that I make the noises. <laughs> 
So basically, well, was, <laughs> you don't, don't feel like you have to. <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> ears are what you need because you need to be able to listen to the woman and you need to hear if she's contracting or if she's pushing. And they're really different noises. Um, and if you ask most women that have had a baby, rather than me have to do it, if you ask most women who've had a baby what the difference is, most will be able to demonstrate that for you. But one's an expulsive push. You really can't mistake it. And, you know, she's bright red in the face and she's she's pushing something out. So if you've got a woman who's pushing, you really need to stay and play. If you've got a woman who's contracting um, and managing and coping and you think you'd be able to get her out to, to the vehicle, then absolutely go for it. Nobody wants to have a home birth unless they've planned for one. Yeah. In which case, we're unlikely to be called, but may still be. Indeed, indeed. Um, so moving on from that then. So if we've made a decision that we're going to stay because mum's pushing, the next thing is that you need to take her somewhere where it's going to be comfortable. And, and again, we have this discussion about where's the best place. And mum can't think for herself right now. She's got quite a lot going on. So I would always try and get her to a place where she's not going to completely ruin a £400 carpet or similar um so or i would whip off I've, I've been known to whip off an oil tablecloth from a dining room table and get that underneath her or you know if she's got a toddler she's going to have a party tablecloth in a kitchen cupboard somewhere get bob the builder tablecloth out anything you can lay your hands on that you can get underneath her because you know i know it's not a priority but it kind of is because four or five hundred pounds after you've just had a baby to recarpet your house is not easy i know it's not a clinical priority priority but i think i feel like it is an i think it's some sort of priority isn't it because essentially what we're talking about is not a medical problem problem no it's it's just providing care for someone that's doing a normal physiological process albeit we might not feel like it and so i think those kind of things are priorities because like you say if, if it goes on to like it statistically will be and um, to be a normal safe delivery then actually that's a massive part of that person's life isn't it and so the experience is really important going forward isn't it definitely I mean I always say to people never lose sight of what an honour and a privilege it is to be part of this this is a big deal this is like your wedding day this is next this some will say it's better some will say it's the same some will say it's worse um but it is up there isn't it with one of those momentous days in your life so it it's it is an absolute priority that we try and make it the best possible experience it can be for that couple and obviously the actual birth itself is, is, is somewhat harrowing for all um and, and we mustn't lose sight of partners in this either because sometimes you just have a if you can remember just have a quick look up and check they're okay because yeah. the horror of what's happening it can, it's written all over their faces sometimes yeah. uh, so do you know and they often cop the brunt of it as well don't they partners will often be sworn at punched i mean i had a woman try to take a bite out of her partner's arm <laughs> And I had to stop her. I was like, no, get off, do not bite. It's like talking to a three-year-old, do not bite. We do not bite in this room. Um, so, yeah, you do need to keep a lookout for them as well and check they're okay. And we also forget, don't we, as, as pre-hospital clinicians, that not everybody's comfortable with blood. Yeah. And so having a baby sometimes can be quite a messy affair. And so trying to just gauge that and say to somebody, or maybe, you know, do you want to just go up the head end and stay up there? That's absolutely fine. And if you can think to throw a towel over mum's legs, all these things are really, they're not things that are at the forefront of our mind, perhaps, when we're going in to help a woman birth her baby, because ultimately it's not something um, green, green folk do very often. And we've got other things in our head. But if there's enough of us, one person needs to look after the partner, really. Yeah, and if, if the partner is pale and sweaty, maybe don't ask them to cut the cord. 
Absolutely not. No, maybe ask from afar and say, had there's been something you wanted to do? No problem. If not, give them a, give them an out um, so that they can say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't meant to be like this. That's fine. Thank you. Go ahead. You're the expert. Uh, yeah. And that's fine. So, yes. So, um, so, so we've got to the stage then. Let's let's move on and just discuss that the baby's now coming out. Now, <laughs> I've seen so many colleagues carry on talking to mum's face, even though there's a head coming out. And you're like, OK, stop talking to her. She don't want to talk to you right now. Put your hand on the head just to gently support it as the head's coming out. Now, there will sometimes some people will say you don't need to do that. Uh, I've always been a firm believer that actually it prevents perineal trauma. And there is now some evidence for that. And just gentle support. I'm not suggesting you hold it so that it can't come out, but just gentle support on the head to allow the perineum to stretch rather than that head hit the perineum and shoot out like a rocket. Um, and cause yeah, because because I've also been taught when I, I think at university or when I was um, less experienced anyway, I, I was taught to um, hands off, let the baby deliver. And it never kind of sat I've not delivered that many, but it never really sat comfortably. It just didn't feel quite right. You, you almost, um, your gut instinct is to, like you say, just provide a bit of support, just because I've there's a head through. kind of hanging I've around. So it seems the logical thing to do. Yeah, it does. And I've lived through. Um, well, I was trained to do hands-on. Then I lived through a period of years where everybody was told to be hands-off. I have to admit, I never was. I didn't subscribe to it. I didn't believe in it. I carried on being hands-on. And now we're back to doing hands-on again. So um, I personally, you know, if you ask a woman the things that they're most fearful of when they're giving birth, they will say two things. They will say, "I'm scared that I'm going to tear very badly or tear at all." And I'm scared that I'm going to have my bowels opened when I'm delivering. They're the two mm. things that are really at the forefront of women's minds. The having the bowels opened is, is embarrassment generally, and they don't want their partner to see that, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. And tearing speaks for itself, really, doesn't it? So there's no harm in it. You're not touching mum. You're touching the baby's head. And you're just allowing that head just to come out nice and slowly and support its delivery. I guess I guess the concern is around, you know, touching the umbilical cord and stimulating and, and causing problems in terms of the physiology of birth and um, breathing and oxygenation. Um, so the cord's but, nowhere at this point. So yeah. you shouldn't have an issue with that. It's literally just the top of the baby's head. So that shouldn't be an issue. You, anything that you um, that you do as the head's coming out. Is, is absolutely fine just give it a little bit of gentle support with your fingers four fingers is all you need and then um and allow it to come out slowly and then as as i always say babies generally come out looking down towards the rectum mm -hmm. so that's why if mum has had her bowels opened it's nice just to have you know if you've got a sanitary towel in your pack or a little pad just to wipe away baby's face or the mum's um you know rectum as as the baby's being born or anus i guess we should use the correct terminology i hate using that word but i will um <laughs> and i always say bottom i'll never say bum i have a real issue with it i hear <laughs> okay. people say push into your bum and it's the most undignified thing having a baby oh, yeah, it doesn't sound, sound too so, professional yeah professionalize it say bottom you know i don't want you to say push into your bum push into your bottom is perfectly fine so um so just give the baby a little wipe around and then you then we're going to wait because uh, that contraction will go away. And generally speaking, the head comes with one contraction. Mm -hmm. And then we wait a couple of minutes for the next contraction to come, which seems like forever. Um, just lots of 
positive um, assurance to mum, tell her, well done, she's done the worst bit, the head's out, that's fantastic. And with the next contraction, I'm going to get you to give me another big push into your bottom and it'll all be over. And I always put that line in, it'll all be over, because then she knows she's got one more push to do. Well, possibly two. But um, generally speaking, the baby then comes. And at that point, you might want to, if you haven't already, and let's imagine we've walked in at the point of head being born, I would probably say to, to mum at that point, are you happy that I deliver baby straight onto your tongue? Because that's the okay. quickest, easiest place for us to give baby. And parents will generally grab the baby uh, on yeah. our box to free us up to do anything else that needs to be done. And if she's on all fours, you can post it through the legs for mum to receive the other side. Just mm -hmm. mindful of the cord length because they're all different. And you don't want mum to pull a baby through and then snap a cord. That's not ideal. So just just gently post the baby through the legs. Mm hmm. And so, so to to recap that bit, so the there's there's a couple of pushes, or you know, you, you, so you kind of get the urge to push in early labour, which you should recognise as um, something that could potentially be conveyed to hospital because generally they're not too shouty, fairly rational, and generally don't appear to be imminently having a baby. It's difficult to <laughs> to yeah. kind of nail down the points, isn't it? And then as they start to engage. Um, like you say, different kind of shouting, very uh, loud, probably re less rational in their conversation, and less up for having a chat with you, um, and look kind of imminently like they're about to push a baby out, essentially. Yeah. Distressed, I think is the word. And, Distressed, and don't, fine. And don't ever try and reason with a woman that's having a baby. It's, yeah. it's not, not to be recommended. <laughs> and, and then when it comes to actually delivering, so kind of one push head, one to two pushes body. In the normal delivery and then um, onto mum's um, abdomen, tummy. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then hopefully, um, baby will cry as soon as it's born, coming out that cold air and they're freezing cold. It's like getting out the shower and not being offered a towel, isn't it? You know, they're freezing cold and soaking wet. So that normally gets them to scream. But if they're not, grab the towel from your pack now we should have two towels in every pack i hope all any listeners go away and check your maternity packs certainly ccam we have one for drying and then a lovely fluffy hooded one for wrapping baby thereafter so the disposable towel dry your baby really thoroughly so this mm -hmm. is a really important part okay so the baby cannot maintain its own temperature and um, for every degree below 36.5 that their temperature drops, their mortality increases by 28%. So let's just think about that for a minute. That's for a term healthy baby. So if it's a mm. preterm baby, it can be as their mortality can increase by as much as 80%. So really important that we dry our baby at birth. Spend time doing that. Um, the other thing to say is that a cold baby, you'll struggle to resuscitate. So all the more reason to make sure your baby is dry and it's warm. And then ultimately, the warmest place for our baby is on mum. She's just done the equivalent of run a marathon. She's as hot as toast. Mm -hmm. So um, baby skin to skin on mum is absolutely perfect. And then with your lovely hooded towel, in our case, um, pop a hat on the baby, pop the little hood over the baby and then cover them both with the with the towel, if that makes sense. Don't wrap the baby and then put the wrapped baby on the mum's abdomen. We want mm -hmm. skin to skin. We want that direct heat source and then cover them both. Um, and if you're in a cold place, then you might want to put something else over them as well. Um, so right. keeping our baby warm is really, really key. And so that that initial, you, got, you know, deliver baby and give baby to mum. Yeah. That initial phase when you're kind of expecting the crying, if they're not, then um, you kind of, like you say, don't panic, dry. And you can fairly, uh, 
hesitant to say vigorously, but you can be quite, um, you know, you have to you have to kind of really dry and stimulate the baby a bit, don't you? You do. Um, rather than pat them down. Yes. Um, the only time I would say there's a caveat there, actually, Silas. So on a nice term, healthy baby, give them a good old rub up. You know, think of it like a puppy. You've got to get it going. Yeah. But on a three term baby where their skin is really thin and frail, absolutely do not rub vigorously on this patient group. This is right, a patient um, because obviously that could be a little bit catastrophic if they've got very, very, very thin skin. Um, but that yeah. I hope will be obvious to, to our colleagues. Yeah. And so and, and at that point, if if your stimulation and your drying doesn't um, cause them to start crying and making noise, is that the point we start to be a bit concerned? So that should stimulate something called the morrow reflex, which any of you cruel people out there have ever prodded a newborn baby. And they do that sort of jump out into a star shape. The arms and the legs go out. Um, <laughs> of course, I've never done that. Um, so you give them a little prod. That's called the morrow reflex. At the same time that they jump, they normally go. <gasps> so they take that first breath. So that's why stimulation at birth is really important and key, because it, it, that transition from you know in utero to extra life can then happen, can then take yeah. place. So it's useful um, to, to sorry just to touch on that in terms of physiology because what we're mm. essentially trying to do is obviously their lungs their the alveolar and the lungs are collapsed and not functioning because they up until that point have had an umbilical circulation and oxygenation and so because it leads into the newborn resuscitation thing doesn't it where essentially you're trying to get that big negative pressure in their chest to unstick their alveoli and expand them to make it easier for them to then use their respiratory system to breathe, um, which I always uh, I use the analogy of a balloon. You know, when you first blow up a balloon, it's quite difficult to do. Um, but once it's partially inflated, it becomes really easy to move air in and out. And, and that's essentially what's happening in that, in that first stage of where they, you know, they try and self-ventilate. That's fine. But if it comes on to us trying to resuscitate, that's, again, the reason for the aeration breaths at the beginning of the algorithm, isn't it? Yeah, that's a lovely way of explaining it. I really like that. I might steal that from you. Um, I mean, you're, yes, you're welcome to it because I'm sure I stole it from someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. So, no, that's really nice. And and I think your comment there about aerating, I always talk about gentilate, don't ventilate as well. Um, you don't need to squeeze nice. your bag really hard. And you can steal that. You can have that if you like. Thanks, um, so, so, yeah, so we're going to keep our baby warm. We're going to stimulate them. Hopefully they're going to take that first breath whilst we're talking on normal birth. Um, and your work will then be complete to some extent. Um, and we'll come on to talk about the cord now. Um, so, yeah, you've got a happy baby. You've got rid of the wet towel. That's the thing I didn't say. Must get rid of the wet towel. Do not leave the baby wrapped in the wet towel. Keep some cold. So mm -hmm. get rid of that wet one. Throw it in the bin and get your nice dry one. So let's imagine in this scenario then, Silas, if you will, that our baby's happy, it's come out, it's screaming, um, and parents are cooing over what they've got. I don't generally tell people what sex their baby is. I normally hold it up and let them discover for themselves unless they specifically say, oh, no, no, you tell us. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's kind of their, their moment, isn't it? Uh, and then we've got the cord, haven't we? Now, there's a lot of discussion around the cord and lots of people will say, just leave it alone. Don't touch it. Don't need to do anything. And that's absolutely fine. That is in fact the case. You don't need to do anything. You can leave it alone. But the optimum time for the benefit to the baby uh, in terms of delayed cord clamping is 60 seconds. So people will often say to you, well, can we wait five minutes or can we wait for it to stop pulsating? And all of that's fine. I don't have any issue with that if baby's well. Um, but the evidence suggests that 60 seconds is the optimum time. And actually, if you think about it, by the time you've popped baby onto mum's tongue or posted it through mum's legs, dried the baby off, you're well past 60 seconds. 
So if you do need to clamp and you do need to take baby away for resuscitation, maybe you've set your NLS up on a table in the other side of the room, then you're absolutely fine. Your 60 seconds will have passed. Fine. And I guess that again goes back to the aeration thing, isn't it? Because if you've got to 60 seconds and they're not and they're still relying on their umbilical cord, it implies that they've not breathed in that time, which hopefully we've picked up on and addressed. Absolutely. Um, And then you need to get them over and you need to do your your initial assessment and your potentially your inflation breaths. Yeah, fine. So 60 seconds, that's, that's quite an easy cut off to use that pun isn't it Um, this is fine because you don't have to think about it because if you've done all the things that you should do i.e dry the baby stimulate the baby give the baby to the parents 60 seconds is well past and to be honest by the time you 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 might not have even opened your maternity pack you might have come straight through the door put a pair of gloves on and and stood there and assisted mum to birth her baby so in which case you've now got to go out or get somebody to go to the vehicle and get a maternity pack get it open, get your, you know, it takes takes much longer than 60 seconds. Yeah, so, I guess because the question that that's people kind of ask around that, and I, I've asked it myself before, is if the cord's still pulsating, do you want to just leave it to stop pulsating? Or, you know, like, like you say, I guess it doesn't really matter, but what? No, you can leave it. If mum and dad want to, that's absolutely fine. And in fact, you know what? If It's not a priority for me to clamp and cut that cord unless I need to resuscitate the baby, in which case that takes priority. Otherwise, yeah. I'm going to leave it. I'm, I'm in absolutely no rush. Once I've delivered a baby and mum and dad are, or mum and partner are playing with baby and looking at their baby, et cetera, et cetera. To be honest, I'm busy doing other things whilst they're enjoying that moment. And mm. uh, I'm certainly not in any rush to clamp and cut a cord. I think the difficulty we have sometimes, um, and it's not a criticism of my midwifery colleagues because they don't understand perhaps, but sometimes we've had crews that have been on a job where they've rung a labour ward and said, oh, you know, this is the situation, what should we do? And the midwives have said, don't clamp and cut the cord, leave it all intact and bring mum and baby in together, which is absolutely fine. And in 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 a hospital setting, that works a treat. But actually, what they've failed to ask is, whereabouts are you? Now, the last crew that were asked to do this, they were told by the labour ward to leave the baby attached to mum. And they rang me afterwards and they were quite distressed. And I was like, why? And they said, because we were on the third floor of a flat and (laughs) the cord was really short and the mum could barely hold the baby. And unfortunately, this was a sad outcome. So the mum didn't want to hold the baby. And you kind of think, oh, my God. Yeah. And the poor midwife on the end of that phone wouldn't have even thought about that. She wouldn't have even wouldn't have come into her head to ask, have you got to get down several flights of stairs with a baby attached between the legs? And if the midwife had known that she just said oh clamping cut that's fine separate the two and particularly yeah. given that this was a sad outcome and this baby hadn't survived it was preterm um she wouldn't have you know she wouldn't have suggested it for a minute um but so sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect there between the two specialties understanding each other's um role or remit or whatever you want to call it yeah 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 fair i, I, I guess the other question around um clamp and cutting is around those those babies that we do have to provide some level of resuscitation to and i think there's a hesitancy there to think right this baby's not breathing properly um but i know that they've got arterial blood flowing through their um umbilical cord yeah it doesn't if you kind of feel like i don't really want to stop that yeah (laughs) it feels like it's exacerbating the problem that you have yeah, no, I hear that. Some people will resuscitate between mum's legs and that's absolutely fine. If you are happy to do that and you're in a place where that works, go for it. Absolutely go for it. No reason you can't. Um, but if it's too difficult for whatever reasons, emotional reasons, physical reasons, whatever the reason may be, then getting aerating those babies' lungs has to be the priority. 
And I guess that's the thing, isn't it? The logistics is it's a balance, but you don't want to commit to a suboptimal resuscitation attempt because no. you're relying on that umbilical cord. And actually, if you kind of think, right, well, I can, I can with some fairly um, simple interventions resuscitate this baby, and statistically, it's always very effective. Not 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 always, but normally very effective. And yeah. those first few steps of the of the algorithm, you kind of think, I will cut and clamp that to optimise the environment for resuscitation and then by providing that really effectively then my chance of the resuscitation being effective is higher anyway. Absolutely. This is the kind of mindset to be in isn't it? It's a very very small percentage of babies that need chest compressions. It's mm. something like five percent don't quote me on that. But, um, yeah no I've heard the same thing. 95 ish so um so the less we interfere the better and let nature take its course but so that's normal birth and really normal birth is quite fine once we get our heads around the fact that we don't go in and talk to the mum's face straight away forever and a day um we get on with what needs to be done and we make that mother feel safe and we make her feel like we absolutely know what we're doing and we're trained to do so um you know i always say that my ambulance crew colleagues are the only other profession that are that deliver babies other than midwives you know we're all in a really privileged position mm. so it's a lovely thing to be part of and of course it's really important that you always suggest that your name is used for the child if it's the right sex so Obviously. really important I haven't had a Dawn I don't know if you've had a Silas I've had a middle name no. I mean I don't blame them it's an awful name but <laughs> well Silas that's really no, my name not your <laughs> name <laughs> When you, when you say it's an enjoyable thing to be part of, I, I, I have to pull you up on that. I'd say it's type two fun, um, as in it's enjoyable to have been part of, but probably not at the time when you're a stressed ambulance person wishing you're in hospital. But yeah, that's just my I perspective, agree. I suppose. No, I agree. And I still say to people now, um, it's very different looking after a woman and a partner in hospital than it is pre-hospitally. And even now, if I go to a maternity job with somebody, I get anxious too. Because there's so many things that can sometimes, you know, that can happen, and we are not in the best place to manage them pre-hospitally, yeah. and so it is really daunting. And particularly, I find in this role, people look to me to have the answers, and I haven't always got them. Yeah, yeah, but like we say, normally, um, <laughs> normally successful. I think yeah, absolutely. The, the the next few questions are around those ones that aren't uh, are unfortunately have those complications. Yeah. And if you're all right to talk about those, I think the first one that immediately comes to mind is this uh, presentation of shoulder dystocia. Yeah. Because that's something, as these emergencies go, that's one I, I took a bit of time to get my head around in terms of recognising that occurring. Because, you know, they still deliver head first and the head might deliver or should deliver as per a normal um, physiological birth. And so when how how do you recognize that the patient has a shoulder dystocia shoulder dystocia so yeah this is one of those ones that people worry about and they're saying they say to me when should i diagnose it as you've just said so basically as the head's been born as we said with normal birth we then wait for the next contraction and mm -hmm. then with the next contraction the rest of the baby should come now you should see with the, the first push we generally have three pushes with each contraction with the first push of the next contraction you should start to see one of the shoulders emerge you should start to see progress something should be coming out mm -hmm. so if it's not and she's giving an almighty gusty push and nothing's happening at that point immediately you diagnose shoulder dystocia you don't wait so okay. it's, people are often surprised by that they're like oh my goodness so soon wouldn't you just let her give another push no you wouldn't what are you waiting for it should be coming out so at that point i'm already getting her 
our legs into what we call the McRoberts position because mm-hmm. actually it's non-invasive and we know that 70% of babies depending on what literature you read 70%-ish of babies will come out with McRoberts alone so if you and I were on a job silas and that happened um, I would we, we'd have already had that exchange of eye contact perhaps if the head delivered particularly slowly we might mm-hmm. both be reading each other's minds and eyes and thinking aha uh-huh. Um, and if if with the next contraction, something didn't come out, um, the anterior shoulder generally, then um, you and I would be getting ready to pop our legs back. And when, when you say McRoberts, because the pictures sometimes don't probably don't do the um, the sign, like the position justice, because um, you kind of when, when I first was taught that you think you just kind of lift their legs up a bit. But you have to really, really move their hips right back, don't you? You do. Um, yeah, it's not comfortable. And most women will go, oh, God, ouch. Um, so, yeah, you need, you're trying to get her thighs onto her chest, albeit they're going to abduct because she's got a, a large pregnant abdomen. Um, yeah. Yes, you, you kind of need two people to push them quite, quite hard back, which is blooming miserable for the poor woman. So there's a lot of apologising as well. Yeah. But most women get it. Most women understand the urgency. They can sort of feel it in your behaviour. Mm-hmm. Although you have all taught me to be the masters of calm. But anyway, uh, aside <laughs> from that, uh, so they normally pick up on the fact that you are, um, you know, you're slightly perturbed by the situation right now. And mm-hmm. so they're very, very compliant. Usually whatever you ask them to do, they will do it. And I've seen women with a baby's head out between their legs do some miraculous things, you know, get into all sorts of positions because yeah. they, they completely get it. And I guess for the, for the mum, you're going to get some sort of adrenaline rush, recognising that you're in a, you know, a, compli- a potential complication in this delivering your baby. Absolutely. Sure they'll be compliant with doing whatever needs to be done. Absolutely, they are. Um, and the, the other thing I've seen in pictures around shoulder dystocia is this um, image of a baby's head that's kind of pulled up really tight around, you know, it's kind of pulled back into the vagina almost with their chin pressed up really tight. Yeah. Um, that's quite a classic it is. thing to see, isn't it? So if you imagine the anterior shoulder is jammed behind the pubic bone mm. um, and the head is there, the neck therefore has stretched quite a lot to get the head out. Mm. Um, and so the baby sort of vacuums back on the perineum in a bid to try and get the neck shortened and back to its shoulders, if you like. So it's being stretched inside and so it's uncomfortable so babies' heads will often vacuum back onto the perineum um until you can until, until it's born and so that's often a sign as well the head will come out and then uh, the, they call it turtle necking so the head comes out of the shell and then it goes back under and sort of vacuums onto the perineum if that makes sense yeah Difficult yeah exactly no turtle necking is quite a good analogy although it doesn't sound very nice <laughs> no but if anybody wants to google it um yeah shoulder dystocia turtleneck they'll probably get a picture yeah um, and so and so like you say kind of the first thing to do at robert's position and really push those legs back um what what if that is not effective in that other 30 percent what are the next kind of steps we're going to do to troubleshoot that situation okay so the important thing to say here is every time you do something you do it in between the contractions okay mm-hmm. Um, you won't be able to do anything physically to mum when she's having a contraction because A, the abdomen will go brick hard and B, she should still be pushing. And so it's hard to gain access to do anything vaginally um, because there's too much of a tight fit, essentially. So um, so you're going to do all of your manoeuvres outside of a contraction. And then when the next contraction comes, then you're going to try and get her to deliver again. So let's say we've got her legs in McRobert. So we've done this actually during that that second contraction, haven't we? So the head came out with the first, second contraction, first push, no progress, pushed her legs back. Mm -hmm. Okay. during that first 
one then I'm going to be saying to her keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing whilst we've got her legs back in the hope that that does the job now if it doesn't as that contraction passes we're going to consider doing something called suprapubic pressure yeah. uh, which is sort of CPR hands over the pubic bone and again if anybody's not familiar with what I'm talking about have a little look or you know do a google uh, suprapubic pressure you're going to do sustained for 30 seconds and I kind of get right over the top of mum that might mean if she's on a bed you've got to climb on the bed with her and you're going to push down towards the skirting board if you will for mm-hmm. a continued 30 seconds and then you're going to rock for 30 seconds so in total you're doing a minute and the hope is that you're going to dislodge that anterior shoulder out from underneath the pubic bone um, and then next contraction you're going to try and push again get mum to push again so I think the the question around superpubic pressure is which direction are you pushing the shoulder in? Yeah, perfect. Well done. Good, good point. So it's automatic to me, and I, I forget. So you that's what, get... yeah, that's what always comes into my head. I don't yeah, want to push it the wrong right. way and make things worse. It's so critical. So you have to go from behind the baby. So you've got to see where the baby's back is, and you're approaching from behind the baby, and you're pushing that anterior shoulder forwards. You know, as if trying to get that anterior shoulder to go forwards. Yeah. Um, okay. so so don't push them backwards. That would be bad. And you may need somebody to explain that to you with a mannequin. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, fine. OK, so that, you know, hopefully that will work. Um, so 30 seconds, um, constant pressure and then intermittent uh, kind of rocking pressure. Correct. Correct. If that doesn't work, is there anything else we can so do? So if that doesn't work. Obviously, we've got, we're kind of getting into the realm of probably outside jail, calc, maybe. Yes. I, don't, I don't know where we stand, but what would yes. be the so next I steps think, that we could consider well, and may happen in hospital? I think we now need to go to hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, some ambulance, trust me, have been taught removal of the posterior arm. And if you have been taught that, that's fine. Uh, I don't perhaps think I should discuss that on this podcast because not everybody will know what that is or be trained or authorised by their trust to perform that manoeuvre. So I think if you've gotten to the point where you've done McRoberts and you've done superpubic and it's not working, at that point we need to, I tell you what, I might consider getting her onto all fours um, just to see, because sometimes just moving mum around, I've certainly had mum walk up and down the bottom two stairs of the house, you know, with her legs sort of abducting as she goes, opening her pelvis up. Uh, Anything you can do to be creative to try and get that baby out go for it but what I don't want people to do is to spend too long at home trying to get a baby out um, when actually they could be hitting the road and pre-alerting a hospital so they'll be waiting on the doorstep for you if you pre-alerted me on labour ward and said you were bringing in a shoulder dystocia and you'd tried McRoberts and Superpubic and it hadn't come I'd be waiting for you at the front door. Yeah Um, I think that's something that we can I've been in that experience uh, situation quite often not not just in the context of of labor complications but any emergency where we can often um, positively affect ongoing treatment when you get to hospital by really clarifying you know without with a handover clarifying what we you know using the s-bar thing what the situation is but also what our recommendation is and sometimes for hospitalists it doesn't come into their mind that they can come outside the hospital into the car park and um but once you say that to them it becomes obvious you know and so I think as ambulance people we shouldn't forget that that's something we can do is just saying this is the situation and please would you meet me in the car park because you know I had a, a semi-complication labour complication recently and the mid there's like three midwives in the car park and they brought a resuscitator out and all sorts and, and it can really really change you know that, that five ten minutes it takes to run down the corridor and try and find where you're going and get lost and stuff. Um, can yeah, make no, a difference, that's, kind 
that that really makes the difference. And when I speak to some of our crews, when I first started, I, re I remember so vividly suggesting that every woman should go to maternity. I felt very passionate about it. Um, and then I remember, I think it was one of our CCP colleagues, actually, Silas, who said to me, yeah, well, that's all well and good, but I work at Brighton. So have you ever been to Brighton? You've got to walk past ED, you've got to go down a really long corridor, and then you've got to go up to the 13th floor in a lift. And sometimes if the wind's blowing in the wrong direction, the lift doesn't work. And so it went on. And I, as I was listening to him replay this drama, I was thinking, oh, my God, it had never occurred to me, you know, that that would be an issue. So it's a very different way of thinking and working, isn't it, pre-hospital care? And and I know because I've been this person that our midwifery colleagues in hospitals don't always perhaps completely appreciate what you're up against. Yeah. And so I think the other, never, the other thing with that as well, and it goes into what you were saying, that um, often, not often, but some hospitals will have their entrance to maternity is in different places at A&E car park. Um, certainly some ones local where, to where I work. And it's easier, you know, if you've got a 20 minute drive, it's easier for the, that midwifery team to find A&E in that 20 minutes than it is for you to find where to park and then run around these corridors and things. And but every ambulance person knows where A&E is, as does the sat-nav. Um, so those kind of logistics can be really important, I guess. They can be and they can they can be the difference, can't they, sometimes in, in delay. So really important that we understand one another's uh, scopes and um, pressures and difficulties and that we're not judgmental of why somebody's taken somebody to A instead of B. It doesn't matter. You know, did the patient get the right care in the right place at the right time? That's the priority here. And as you said before, it really doesn't hurt to say to our our colleagues on a labour ward at times, uh, do you mind coming out? This is situation critical. Can you come out and meet us, please? Because yeah. they won't perhaps have considered it. Um, and they'll probably go, oh, 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 OK. Yeah, why not? Um, because, you know, I know from speaking to some of our green colleagues, they just want that responsibility off their shoulders as soon as possible because yeah. they don't feel expert in that area. And that's fine. And, you know, if you, you said to a midwife, go and manage that trauma cardiac arrest over there, uh, they would they would be the same. Yeah. With all our areas <laughs> of specialty, haven't we? Yeah. And um, so the other thing that came into my mind when, when you're saying that is obviously we when we did our training, we discussed that um, delivering the posterior arm thing. Yeah. And yeah. which, and so you, what what we might have in the ambulance service is enhanced care teams such as um, critical care paramedics or um, medical teams or or what, whatever who might be able to or you know I guess community midwives if they're nearby as well yeah. who may be able to deliver more enhanced care in that situation, um, but they'll only be able to do that if you let them know that they need to be there. And so the the age old question is when do you request that support? So it rather depends how quickly they can get you. If you've been called to a woman who's perhaps having an imminent delivery and you know midwives are en route um, and they're two minutes away, I might wait. Any more than that, I think I'm going. Because mm -hmm. I'm just thinking you don't know how long they're going to be. You haven't always got a phone number for them. You can't wait more than 10 minutes because this baby is situation critical. Mm. It's a time emergency so you know as awful as it is that you're driving away from a scene where help may be coming actually we need uh, more senior help and sometimes we need an obstetrician and sometimes we need an operating theatre and as lovely as my midwifery colleagues are they know as well as I do we're not always enough yeah yeah absolutely fine okay so that's um, shoulder dystocia and once we're in hospital like you say delivering the posterior arm and then some more things that sound painful and not very nice um, but ultimately may be required for that for that delivery 
Um, so if we move on to breach, then I think you know this is easier to recognise, isn't it? Because heads don't look like feet. Um, or but, bottoms. Or bottoms. <laughs> but, if, but if we're in that situation where we're expecting a head and we see instead a bottom half of a baby, um, fairly easy to recognise a, a breach delivery. But how do we then deal with that? How do we adjust our care to safely deliver that baby? Okay, so um, first of all, let's assume then in this scenario that mum thinks the baby's head down. So she's perhaps, or let's imagine we don't know. So you come into to my home and you can see, as is often topical with a breach, a set of scrotum coming out. <laughs> and you're like, oh, oh that's not normal. Um, and you might say to me, oh, your baby's, um, I mean, I would always try and soften the mood by saying, oh, your baby's upside down or the wrong way around. Oh, well, baby's coming out bottom first, is it? just to see if to test the water really and yeah. then if mum says no no it's head down it's been head down all the way through then we say oh well not to worry that's fine baby's obviously done a quick last minute forward roll uh, yeah. try and light of the situation as best you can um and then really you need to try and persuade that mother that it's okay and it's not a problem so i spend my life saying breech babies tend to be really clever and um deliver themselves quite well and then often a bit quicker and they often help themselves out. So they kind of do these little shimmies and these little knee crunches uh, to try and get themselves out. Uh, and ideally, you should see progress with every push. Um, so a little bit more of the baby should emerge every time she pushes. And that's a sign of a good breach. And you need to do nothing. And we talk about sitting on our hands and hands off the breach. So if you see a breach baby coming and all is well in the world, do nothing at all. Just observe, encourage and allow mum to, to continue to push as she as she needs to and follow her body. Whatever her body tells her to do, go with it. Mm-hmm. So that's breach if it's all normal. You do nothing except encourage and support and you get ready to receive once the baby, once the baby's trunk is out and the body is out and then mum gives an almighty push for the head uh, and then you deliver the baby in the same way that you would any other baby and you hand it straight to the parents. Mm-hmm. That's OK if it's all going well. And then we need to talk about breach where it's not going well and we've got concerns. So in that scenario, there's a couple of things I tell people to look for. And that is as the baby's emerging two things you need to look out for is the baby moving is it wriggling so that tells us the baby's alive and well Mm -hmm. and what color is the baby so the baby isn't going to be pink as some people will often say Uh, babies don't go pink for a good minute post delivery Mm -hmm. Uh, baby will be blue if it's healthy and a blue baby is is a good baby we're happy with that what i'm less happy with is a white baby that's floppy like a rag doll now that means that we probably need to go in and assist and get the baby out that's the baby Mm -hmm. that's not doing well to all intents and purposes. So white baby, not moving, probably need to intervene and assist mum with getting this baby out. Okay. And in which case, there are various manoeuvres you can do to assist a breach. But we talk again about not doing anything until the baby's nipples are out. And the reason for that is simple, that if you start to fiddle with a baby whilst it's coming out and it's in the breech position. Remember we talked earlier on about the Morrow reflex and how you can stimulate the baby's arms and legs to go out. Well, the baby still has an active Morrow reflex in utero. So if you start fiddling with it and it lifts its arms up, it can wedge itself in the pelvis and you can end up with something called nuchal arms. And we don't want that. So um, we wait until we can visualise the baby's nipples and then we know that the arms are very far down in the birth canal. Um, 
the arms are far down they can't lift them up so that's fine so you do nothing you have to encourage mum it's all down to mum until the baby's nipples are out once you can visualize baby's nipples we try to encourage keeping ba uh, baby what we call bum to tum um mm -hmm. and bum to tum is the only time you're allowed to say bum by the way i was going to um, pull you up on that but... <laughs> i thought you might i thought you might baby's bum to mum's tum um, just because right. it rhymes bottom to tum, not the same. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to flick out the little legs. Um, and you, there is only one way you can bend a knee. You can't bend it the wrong way. So you're going to put your your finger and your thumb underneath the, the knee and you're going to just lift out those little legs. Mm -hmm. um, and once the legs are out, sometimes you will find that mum can do it after that um and you need do no more but i'm still wanting to see progress with every single contraction if i'm concerned about the baby yeah. so let's imagine now that we've got we can see the scapula the shoulder blades and i'm still worried about this baby i'm now going to hold the baby at the pelvis on the hips mm -hmm. on the bony parts okay really important you hold the baby on the bony parts and not the soft abdomen where you can cause internal damage to the tissues hold the bony parts of the pelvis and you're going to rotate the baby a half turn and flick out one arm and flick it down and then you're going to rotate baby the other half turn and flick the other arm down yeah and then you're going to leave the baby to hang which is really bizarre and people often get a little bit anxious about it understandably because it looks a little barbaric so yeah. as the baby is hanging there you're encouraging it to flex its head and put its chin on its chest um, and that gives a smaller diameter of the head to fit through the the pelvis as it's coming out whereas if the head is up and tipped backwards um that then then it's a wider diameter to, to deliver so yeah. you're going to leave the baby to hang you're going to have to tell everybody else in the room um partner etc that this is normal and explain why you're doing it and then you're going to get mum to give a massive push with the head and again if that doesn't happen you're going to go in for what we call the after coming head which mm -hmm. is two fingers on the cheekbones so you have to go in vaginally so you go in posteriorly and you put two fingers on the baby's cheekbones and you put the other two fingers Again, you're going internally at the top and you're putting two fingers at the back of the baby's head and you're trying to push that head forwards. And as the mum pushes, you're going to push that baby into a flex position and deliver. Quite hard to describe on a podcast. So, yeah. And, you know, hopefully people would have been taught this. Otherwise, they won't be yeah. doing it, um, obviously. But also you can obviously see videos of, of people demonstrating that. But it's essentially two hands, um, the, your underneath hand um, on the cheekbones to flex the chin into the chest. And the other hand on the back of their occiput to provide kind of counter pressure. You've got it. The yeah. best thing to look up, if you're going to look up um, breach delivery, do prompt, uh, which is P-R-O-M-P-T, prompt mm -hmm. breach delivery, because some of the breach deliveries from Japan and China and other places are quite, quite quite a difficult watch so um prompt is a is a professor in bristol who does a lot of uh training around deliveries and emergencies so i would i would definitely recommend watching that video cool i can say that in the in the notes as well for people to see yeah brilliant i can send you a link cool all right and so and and with these deliveries so that's kind of delivery of breach um and so having discussed breach and shoulder dystocia um are these babies that have been through this kind of um stressful delivery uh, more likely to have subsequent need for resuscitation um, yeah and, and how do you recognize that yeah they are um so because of the traumatic way in which they've been delivered and they may have suffered some degree of hypoxia whilst they've been trapped in the birth canal for a bit longer than one might like 
Um, they may need a bit of uh, ventilatory support when they're born. Hopefully it won't move on to chest compressions. Hopefully these babies will get going with good five inflation breaths. But yes, there's always a possibility that you'll need to go a bit further down the um, the algorithm, the resuscitation algorithm. But yes, I always say to parents in these difficulties or difficult deliveries, we're expecting the baby to perhaps not cry straight away and maybe not breathe, but that's okay. We're ready for it. Um, and, you know, we know what to do to try and make it all get, you know, come together, so to speak. Yeah. And so these are the situations where you've kind of got a, a low threshold for cut and clamp the cord and onto your hopefully pre-set up uh, resuscitation area to Absolutely. deliver those aeration breaths. If you and I were on, a, uh, were on either of these two emergencies, Silas, and we had another crew with us, I'd be asking them to set that up whilst we were trying to uh, support delivery. Uh, or you, you might you find... I go and set that up and leave you to <laughs> Yeah, or that probably. <laughs> I'll be going to get yourself back here. I'll be like, I'll just get you to I'll pass you things from the top end. <laughs> you could be my bestie. Uh... <laughs> um, fine. Okay, cool. Thanks for going over that. I think that's a useful description and a reminder for people. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.